Our first scripture reading, Winnie, and everybody else, is Psalms 19. The heavens are telling of the glory of God, and the firmament proclaims His handiwork. Day to day pours forth speech, and night to night declares knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words. Their voice is not heard. Yet their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In the heavens he has set a tent in the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom from his wedding canopy, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. It is rising, it's rising, where? It's rising is from the heavens, I apologize. Its circuit to end is never ending, and nothing is hid from the heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The decrees of the Lord are sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is clear, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is pure and enduring forever, and the ordinances of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to the desires are they than gold, and much than fine gold, sweeter than honey and dripping from the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them there is great reward. But who can detect the errors? Clear me from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from the insolent. Do not let them have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of the transgressions. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable to you, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Our second scripture reading is James 3, 1 through 12. Not many of you should presume to be teachers, my brothers, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. We all stumble in many ways. If anyone is never at fault in what he says, he is a perfect man, able to keep his whole body in check. When we put bits into the mouths of horses to make them obey us, we can turn the whole animal, or take ships as, as an example. Although they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are steered by a very small rudder wherever the pilot wants to go. Likewise, the tongue is a small part of the body, but it makes great boasts. Consider what a great forest is set on fire by a small, small spark. The tongue is also a fire, a world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole person, sets the whole course of his life on fire, and is itself set on fire by hell. All kinds of animals, birds, reptiles, and creatures of the sea are being tamed and have been tamed by man, but no man can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. With the tongue we praise our Lord and Father, and with it we curse men, who have been made in God's likeness. Out of the same mouth come praise and cursing. My brothers, this should not be. Can both fresh water and salt water flow from the same spring? My brothers, can a fig tree bear olives, or a grapevine bear figs? Neither can a salt spring produce fresh water. Our gospel reading this morning is from the Gospel of Mark, uh, chapter 8, um, verses 27 through the end of chapter 8, which is verse 38. Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi, and on the way, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they answered him, John the Baptist, and others, Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. He asked them, But who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, You are the Messiah. And he sternly ordered them not to tell anyone about him. Then he began to teach them that the Son of Man must undergo great suffering and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes, 
and be killed and after three days rise again. He said all this quite openly, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and looking at his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are setting your mind not on divine things, but on human things. He called the crowd with his disciples and said to them, If you want to become my followers, let me let them, if any want to become my followers, let them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For those who want to save their life will lose it, and those who lose their life for my sake and for the sake of the gospel will save it. For what will profit them to gain the whole world and forfeit their life? Indeed, what can they give in return for their life? Those who are ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of them the Son of Man will also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. The Word of God. So, when I was reading this this morning, or this week, I didn't just write this this morning, I promise. It made me think about the idea of a legacy. Legacy is kind of a funny thing, isn't it? The, 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 what you leave behind, what people think of you after you're gone. On some level, what people think about us after we're gone is the, determined by a lot of our decisions, is determined by what we do. Uh, but ultimately, we have a little control over it. I think about that when I think about Peter because we can set up, you know, vast things. We can set up, you know, all these things that we've done in our life. But ultimately, just like Peter, because Peter did all these great things. Peter, you know, helped found the church. We wouldn't have uh, the church as we have it today were not for Peter. Peter did amazing things and lived a very hard life. But a lot of times when we think about Peter... What we end up thinking about is him opening his mouth and putting his foot in it. And that's kind of what we have today. So even with, you know, Acts, in Acts, Peter standing up in front of all of these people and, and preaching to them in all these different tongues and, uh, you know, leading the, the church out of just Jerusalem and into the rest of the world. But we have this story where he makes a fool of himself, and it's kind of hard not to think about it at some point when you start thinking about the Apostle Peter. And it's the other disciples as well. They, they love, you know, making fools of themselves. Uh, and I think that's kind of an example of what Christianity ends up looking like for a lot of folks. Because as much as we try, we still end up making fools of ourselves from time to time. Uh, and that is okay, like, from a, from a comedy perspective, because it's nice to relieve the tension. But also it's okay from the perspective of this is hard and the failures are going to come, but occasionally uh, the good stuff will come in through those failures. Our gospel reading today is one example of Jesus working through one of the disciples' failures. Jesus is teaching the disciples and he asks them, who do you think, who do people say that I am? And this is something that, that Jesus does quite often. We've I know I've preached on it once, and I think Alicia's preached on it once in the last year, so you might be getting tired of this story. But in Mark's uh, telling of it, it's a little different. Um, so Jesus says, who do people say that I am? And the disciples start naming people. But he says, but who do you say that I am? And I love that question because it's something to stop and think about, not just about Jesus, but also about ourselves. Taking a moment and saying, 
who am I? Who do people say that I am? Is an important stop and moment to stop and think. It is an important question to ponder because so often we are defined by what is going on around us more so than we're defined by who we want to be. And so stopping and thinking about who the world says we are, who in comparing that to who God says we are is an important stop, uh, moment to stop and think. But Jesus, but in that moment, Peter says, you are the Messiah. Now, we've talked about this before, but to Peter, to the disciples, to the people of Israel at that time, Messiah did not mean what Jesus meant when Jesus says Messiah. Messiah did not mean Jesus. It did not mean Son of God who comes to cure the world of sin and death, but rather it meant, hey, y'all, Rome is tough. And they're really messing our stuff up. And if we had somebody who God ordained to show up and, you know, put a sword to them, that would be awesome. And so there were a lot of people that claimed to be messiahs that acted as a messiah in this understanding. They didn't succeed. Uh, we know this from not just the history of the Roman Empire, but also the history of that area at the time. There were folks that stood up left, right, and center saying they were the messiah and ended up on a cross uh, for their insurrection. So when Jesus says, who do you say I am? And Peter says, you're the Messiah. Peter is saying, hey, you're going to do, I believe that you're going to do what we want you to do. I believe you're going to solve this problem for us. And it was a big problem. Rome was colonizing. Rome was taking their resources. Rome was destroying their way of life. The Jewish people saw Rome as an insurrection, as a something that they had no hope from. And so when Peter says, you're the Messiah, Peter says, you're the hope we've been asking for. You're going to end this. Jesus does not say, you're wrong, because Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus does not say, you're you're wrong with some qualifications, but he says, I am the Messiah. But what he says to Peter after that is, I don't want you to tell anybody about it. Now, that's a pretty common thing in Mark's gospel, uh, is this, this idea of a hidden Messiah. But one of the reasons that it's so pertinent is because everyone thinks the way Peter does. Everyone thinks, uh, you know, this triumphant Jesus is going to come take over. And what he's saying is, you can let people think that, but don't stoke the fire. It didn't work. The, the fire still gets stoked. But uh, that's the, the way that it happens. But you can see how that deflates Peter, right? When he says, hey, this Messiah is, this is the guy. I found him. And he's like, eh, it's, I am the guy, but don't tell anybody. So it's, what's the fun in finding the guy if you can't tell everybody? Um, and what's the... What's the, the, how can someone lead if they don't know that he's the leader? How can we start this insurrection if we can't spread the word? If we can't just, you know, go walking around in the middle of the night and be like, Jesus is the Messiah. Meet us at the, at the courtyard at midnight. Like, you can't be like, all right, we need pitchforks and we need torches. That's not how this works. So when he says, uh, don't tell anybody, he's already taken the wind out of Peter's sails. But then he takes the wind out even further by saying, hey, just so you know, I'm going to die. 
So, like, in this moment, Peter has gone from believing that this is the guy who's going to, to solve all of our problems to immediately thinking that the coup is going to fail. So Peter's obviously upset. This is ruining his apple cart. His friend and teacher just said something crazy. And I don't know how often y'all have been in a situation where you have a friend say something crazy, but the immediate response is to grab that friend, to take him to the side because you don't want to embarrass him. You don't want to be like in front of everyone. You don't want to be you say, you just said something crazy, but you take him to the side. And just like Peter, you say, Jesus, 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 you're being silly. That's not what's going to happen. We believe in you. Let's get some swords. Let's get this done. We can do this. But that's what he says. We believe in you, Jesus. When it comes to words that describe the church, I can't think of anything that you would... When people say, hey, what does it mean to be a Christian? It means believing in Jesus. Peter believed in Jesus in this moment, but he believed in Jesus in a in a nebulous sense. He believed in Jesus in the way that, that you believe in someone like a cat poster. You believe, like, you know, you, we believe in you. You can do it. And not believing Jesus. He might have looked at what Jesus took as a promise, and he looked at it as pessimism. He didn't look at it as what Jesus was saying would happen, but he looked at it as Jesus not believing in himself. Peter, in stepping aside with Jesus, is telling him he's wrong. He's telling Jesus that, that whatever you think is going to happen, I believe something better is going to happen. You see, Peter knew to believe in Jesus. At this stage in their relationship, he knew that, that this is the guy to follow, but he didn't know to fully trust in what Jesus had in store. Jesus calls him out, says, get behind me, Satan, for you are setting your mind not on divine things, but on human things. Now, one, calling someone Satan is a really good way to end an argument. <laughs> but what he's saying is, get behind me, deceiver, get behind me, person who is trying to trick me. I know what I'm talking about, because a lot of times when we don't believe Jesus, we try to trick God. We try to trick ourselves. We try to lie our way into what we want to happen. Jesus knows the pain people are in. Jesus knows the pain Peter is in. He knows who Jesus think, who Peter thinks the Messiah is. But Jesus is more than that. So often, as Christians, it's easy for us to say, this is Jesus. But what we do is we step up this set up this kind of like uh, cutout of Jesus and say that this is Jesus. One of the worst movies ever that I'm not going to tell you to watch because it's inappropriate to tell from a pulpit for people to watch is a movie called Dogma. Uh, and one of the things is uh, George Carlin plays a cardinal in the Catholic Church and he's trying to, yeah, I know this is really just setting it up rough, isn't it? Uh, but he's, he, he realizes that the church has a marketing problem and so he pulls out uh, this cardboard cutout of Jesus doing finger guns and smiling real big and calls him Buddy Christ. And he's like saying Jesus has a marketing issue. And so the church is going to figure out how to how to make Jesus applicable to the new generation. But that's 
so often what we do with Jesus, we, we take one aspect of him and we, we make it the easy thing to point to. We look at Jesus the carpenter or Jesus the rabbi, Jesus the rebel, Jesus the crucified, even Jesus the son of God and say this is Jesus while ignoring the rest of it. We look at one facet while ignoring all of the other parts because Jesus is God and God is bigger than we can ever imagine. So Jesus calls Peter out on focusing on one facet. Jesus is letting them in on the secret that this is what is going to happen, that the situation is more complicated than they can expect, but Peter can't hear it in that moment. I love the fact that that Peter gets so upset, he completely skips over the fact that Jesus says, and I'm going to raise again in three days. You would think that admitting that the biggest miracle in the history of humanity was going to happen would have been enough to, to give him pause. I know most of my experience with talking to the girls has been making sure that they hear everything that I say, because very clearly, very quickly, the, the, the first thing that comes to my mouth is the only thing that they stick to. So if I say, uh, you know, you're going to get ice cream if you do X, Y, and Z, all they hear is the ice cream. You can't, you can't really get the if you do this in their head no matter what. You've got to, to finagle it to where the thing that you want them to do is the first thing that you say or else you're not going to get anywhere. And even, it's I don't know, Jesus might have been able to do that this time, but really... I think Peter made up his mind beforehand that, that he was going to be frustrated. So what does it mean when Jesus is believed in but not believed? When Peter believes in Jesus but does not believe Jesus? What he's doing is he's taking what he wants. He's taking what he thinks should happen and imprinting it onto Jesus and making Jesus say what he wants him to say. How easy is it for us to do that these days? How easy is it for us to take the words of Jesus and warp them into to getting done what we want done? He believes in Jesus' authority, but he's trying to use Jesus' authority instead of becoming susceptible to it himself. He's seen Jesus heal the sick and the blind. He's seen Jesus speak with authority. He's believed him enough to believe that he's the Messiah, but he thinks that he knows what that means already. So how often do we come to, to Jesus with our own presuppositions? How often do we come to Jesus with our own expectations about what Jesus is, who Jesus is, what Jesus means, and letting that change us instead of letting Jesus change us? Now Jesus continues by turning around and, and making an example of Peter, right? He says to them, if you want to become my followers, deny yourselves and take up your cross and follow me. For those who want to save their life will lose it. And those who lose their life for my sake and for the sake of the gospel will save it. For what will profit them to gain the whole world and forfeit their life? Those who are ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of them the Son of Man will also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father and the holy angels. Now, there's 12 sermons right there. But I'm not giving you 12 sermons. I'm giving you one. So I'm going to skip through a little bit. But what Jesus is saying is 
what causes us to ultimately be able to believe Jesus. When we fail to believe Jesus, we're unable to get ourselves out of the way. When we are unable to get ourselves out of the way is when we fail to believe Jesus. Jesus says that those who follow Jesus have to deny themselves, deny what they want, to lean into what Jesus wants for their life. And that's going to be hard. That's not going to be the easy way. That's not going to be the way that looks like what the world wants. We might try to look after ourselves, to look after what we want, but Jesus warns us that even if we get the power, the money, the fame, and the fortune, we've endangered our very soul in the process. Because in doing that is how we forget who Jesus is. Jesus knew this would be a temptation. So what does it look like now? Because it's not as easy to be in Peter's position to to need Jesus to take up swords against an imperial regime. It's not what we're running into because 400 years after Jesus rose from the dead, the, the regime kind of took a liking to Jesus. We have the story of Constantine where all of a sudden Christendom comes into play, where Christianity spreads like wildfire, wild, wildfire and becomes the, the most known religion in the, in the land. So what does this temptation look like today? We have no problem seeing the divine in Jesus. If anything, our problem comes when that's the only thing we see. One of uh, a pastor that I quote probably every week uh, is a guy named Brian Zond, who says that we have a tendency to uh, demote Jesus to the secretary of afterlife affairs. We tend to to look at the 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 divine aspect of Jesus only. And in doing so, we forget the whole picture. The divine part of Jesus is known far and wide, but for a lot of people, it's been easy to forget the life and teachings of Jesus. There are pastors who will stand up and preach Jesus every Sunday. When you ask them what Jesus means by turning the other cheek, what Jesus means by blessed are the peacemakers and blessed are those who mourn, or even what it means to love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, they'll see Jesus is speaking metaphorically. Or Jesus is speaking about the kingdom that's coming, that is what we're hoping for. Because surely those things aren't possible now. You can see those pastors scooping Jesus up and taking him aside and being like, Jesus, 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 why are you saying these things? This is complicated. This is not easy, and this is painful. Let's talk about something else. We have to not just believe in Jesus, but believe what Jesus has to say to us and into our lives. We have to let our eyes become the eyes that see the world as Jesus does. When we say, be thou my vision, what we're saying is, let us see you and let us see what you see, O God. This requires us not just to see the spiritual needs around us, but also the physical needs around us. 
and not just speak out against sin, but also against the injustices that lead to those needs. There's this well-known pastor named John MacArthur who this week put out a statement called The Statement on Social Justice and the Gospel. It's a sprawling 14-section manifesto where he says that basically the way the world understands race and gender and uh, all these in, in poverty are, are infiltrating the church and that anything that we focus on that is not the, the gospel of Jesus Christ is a waste of time. He says basically that, that anything that, that, that the race is a, is a construct, and as it is a construct, we can't allow it to tell us what is right and wrong. Uh, it is not something that can tell us if someone has been harmed or not, but it is instead something that we have to uh, ignore completely. And he says the same thing about poverty. Uh, he says the same thing about gender. He says the same thing about uh, a big part of this is in response to the Me Too movement, uh, that basically that people are saying in, in life and also in churches in the Church Too movement uh, that there are people who are preying on women in their churches. There are people who are preying on the, the vulnerable in their congregations. And basically he's saying that anything uh, like this is just a secular way of watering down the gospel. And not only did he say this, he, it's something you can sign. So far, I checked this morning, almost eight, more than 8,000 pastors have signed this and said that, that anything uh, that is not just preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ, or saying that this isn't a part of the gospel of Jesus Christ, actually. He's saying that this is a secular idea. And he writes that in order to reach people for the gospel, we can't waste time and resources taking care of people, basically, is what he says. In order to say this, in order to sign this document, John MacArthur and these more than 8,000 other pastors have to basically ball up and throw away most of the stuff that Jesus says in the gospels. They basically have to almost play like Thomas Jefferson and cut out all of the parts of the gospel that they don't like. They have to ignore who Jesus was, who Jesus lived and worked with, who Jesus called us to care for, and who Jesus died for. They believe in Jesus, but they failed to believe Jesus. I started out this morning talking about legacy. How funny is it that what people often think about us after we're gone is not what we wanted them to remember. That one time that Jesus called Peter Satan probably isn't what Peter would want us to stand up here and talk about. But as I looked at that list of 8,000 pastors this week, I realized how easy it is for us to put our own wants and desires in the way of the wants and desires of those that Jesus loved. How easy it is for us to forget who Jesus called us to be. And it is how easy it is for us to for, forget who Jesus was. These pastors want an easier gospel, a gospel that doesn't have to worry about the well-being of the folks in our congregation, in our neighborhood, and in our world. But really, all they're doing is saying that our crazy Savior doesn't really know what he's talking about. I pray that our legacy, whatever it may include, says the opposite, that we cared for our neighbors, that we went to bat for them, 
and that we share the heart of Jesus instead of trying to sweep it under the rug. Let's pray.